I have been teaching Christians in a church setting since I was a very young adult. I've been doing this a long time. In six short years, I'll reach my 30-year mark as pastor of Cornerstone. As I near that 30-year mark, I am praying, I am studying till my eyes bleed, uh, I am wrestling with decisions that need to be made, uh, I am consulting uh, senior staff and elders, and I'm really seeking God's leadership for the next six years. I believe that the glory days of Cornerstone are ahead of her, not behind her. I'm very optimistic about where this church is going with an average age of 30 years right now. This is the average age church member is 30 years old. In 10 years, you guys will just be in the prime of your leadership. Your 40s and 50s going into your 60s is the whole enchilada of leadership. And already right now, we've got 20-year-olds leading who are going to have decades of experience by the time they get to that sweet spot of, of leadership for the Lord Jesus Christ. But from where I'm standing, I, I want to take a moment this morning and give you my perspective. From where I'm standing and where I am at my age and my tenure, uh, I'll put it in something that most of you can relate to. It's very much like being the parent of a 14-year-old. It's very much like being the parent of a 7th, 8th, ninth grader. And from where I'm standing, I'm looking forward and I'm realizing from like a parent's perspective, we only have four more summers together. Where do you want to spend them? That's a sobering thought as a parent. When you're starting to hand car keys to your kid and you realize, wow, we just got a couple more of these summers and that's it. It's like a parent looking at their family and saying, okay, you know, here's where we are. We've got four family vacations together, configured like we are now, and from this, after those four years, it'll be almost impossible to get everybody's schedules lined up. So we got like four family vacations left. Where would you like to take your family, and what would you like to see together and experience together, and where would you like to walk together and, and, and play together and, and put those memories into their head and into their heart so that your kids can carry them forward for a lifetime together. As a parent, at some point, I see the meshes over here with about the demographic I'm talking to, at some point, uh, Spencer and Christy, what flashes through your mind is you begin to ask yourself, okay, I've got four more years to teach them before they leave the house. Oh my goodness, what do we need to teach them? Do they know how to do a 1040 easy form? You probably will never write a check, but do you know how to do your banking? Do you know how to go to the DMV? Do you know how to get your car inspected? Does my child know how to do? And you've got a long list of things that begin to occur to you as a parent. And, you're, and I'll tell you this now, and when you drop them at college, you walk away and you cry and you say, oh my gosh. Do you think we taught them enough? Do you think they can figure this out from here forward? You know, and thankfully the phone still rings just about every day and they're asking a question, but you will have prepared them and they will be, they will be ready. But when you understand that illustration, you understand where I am. I, I've got a limited number of days and there's a lot of decisions to be made. Because all of us who've been in church for any amount of time, especially if you grew up in church, and I talk about the baggage all the time, if you grew up in church, you know things are broken in the contemporary church. But complaining about what's broken is not the same as fixing things. We are not going to be the church that sits around and complains about everything that's broken. We're going to be the church that finds the brokenness, looks at the brokenness, and tries to find a way to fix the brokenness and move beyond the brokenness. Identifying the problem is only the first step in the whole solution that needs to happen. Now, I can lead the charge for the reforms that need to be made, but there must be a willingness from the congregation for the reforms to occur without division. 
And I'm going to keep saying this. I've been saying it for two or three or four years. Reforms need to be made. I can lead the charge. But I cannot get up here and lead the charge just every time I get ready to open my mouth saying, okay, who will leave if I say this? It's an impossible way for a pastor to pastor. I need to address your brokenness. But you can't get up and run away if your brokenness is uncovered. You have to look at your brokenness and say, okay, maybe I am a little broken or maybe my theological system is a little broken. How can I fix it? Not how can I stick my head in the sand and pretend like it's not broken. There are some incredibly difficult issues that every church is facing in the future. And I'm proud of you because there has been a willingness to fix some of the problems. We led the charge already. Uh, we led the church in the past few years to totally rewrite all the governing documents. From the Articles of Incorporation, the Articles of Faith, the Covenant of Faith, the church, co- the development of core beliefs, Uh, the, the institution of new offices. Listen, it was an incredible rewrite. We redesigned the governing structure to be faithful to Scripture, always big for us, high view of Scripture, be faithful to Scripture, and yet build a structure that will function in a modern world. We championed those changes to increase accountability on the role of lead pastor. I want to be very clear So everybody understands what's happening behind closed doors as the elders and deacons are rewriting those documents. We increased accountability on my role. We didn't make the pastor a dictator. We gave the pastor all kinds of checks and balances, both internal and external to the organization. Because we see that as a problem in churches. Pastors are not being accountable. There's no one keeping accountability at the top of the organization. So we redefined that and we redefined the role of elder and deacon and brought great clarity of how the roles are different in the church and what they need to be doing. We championed all of those changes, uh, really, especially around the, the core beliefs, to increase the unity within Christ's church, knowing we come from many different traditions. And when I say many different traditions, I don't mean just some come from Church of Christ and some come from Baptists. Within the Baptist universe, the traditions are so vastly different, they don't even line it either. They're they're, they're all over the place. So when I say from different traditions, don't think, well, we're accommodating those Catholics that are here. No, we're accommodating the Independent Baptists, the Southern Baptists, the Egalitarian Baptists, the Complementarian Baptists, the Hardshell Baptists, the Missionary Baptists, and I could just go on for days. When I say different traditions, I mean we are a mixed belief people who come together on the main issue. And so we rewrote the documents that say we can come from different traditions, but we don't have to agree on some second tier issues because no one in 2,000 years has had uniformity on the second tier issues. And if you make that the litmus test, no church can... The only way you can have a church in complete conformity is to have 20 people. And even then, your wife will probably disagree with you. Okay? That's the only way. And so, here's what I'm saying. We, We rewrote it and said we have to agree on the core beliefs. Some of these other things are... They're not not essentials, they're not make or break issues, they're second tier issues that no one has agreed on in 2,000 years. But at the same time, we as a church know that there are some things that we must agree on, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a non-negotiable for cornerstone. It is central to everything we believe. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. And Paul has built his entire writings around the primacy and the centrality of the gospel message. So what we do is we ask every member to sign a covenant that says you agree with the gospel. You agree with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You agree with the central issue that unites every believer on planet earth. And then we have uh, uh, other, other beliefs. Now, we champion the revocation 
of the unbiblical ban on women in church leadership. We have revoked that here at Cornerstone. We believe we cannot fulfill the Great Commission with half of the team sitting on the sidelines. As we read the Bible, we read very clearly that every believer has the Holy Spirit, not just the male believers. Can I get a witness anywhere? Okay, I just want to be sure we all are still in agreement on what we agreed to a few years ago. We believe that every believer has the Holy Spirit, not just the male believers. And that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every believer as the Holy Spirit sees fit, not as the Board of Elders see fit. It is the Holy Spirit that divvies out the gifts and says, here's how I'm going to raise you up to edify and encourage the body of Christ. And we can find no scripture in the Bible that parses spiritual gifts along gender lines. There is no scripture that says, now here are the gifts of the Spirit for males. Now here are the gifts of the Spirit for females. They will clean the church and cook the Lord's Supper bread and, and, and pick up the communion cups and, and smile and be nice. No, it's not in the scripture. Just not there. Now those are big reforms. Those were big changes for us. And this is my challenge to you in the coming years. Be teachable. Many of you have been saved decades. Trust me, you don't have it all figured out. Repent of your pride. And be teachable. And above all things, stay unified as a church family around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on the mission... And we'll sort out the other bits as we go. Those are the big things. Now, I, I have embraced, uh, this is a common staff conversation, I have embraced my remaining role here as transitional. I get that. I, I've embraced it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm buckled in and ready to go. My role is transitional now. My role is reformational uh, my years as your pastor, however many they will be going forward, is a time of reformation and a time to reinforce the foundation of our church so that the young men and the young women who are coming up will have a missional, disciple-making, soul-winning church where you can bring up both your biological and your spiritual children and grandchildren and where we'll have a strong community of believers who are following Jesus Christ. You know, it's like the summer thing. You got four summers left. I got about 300 sermons left. You know what I'm thinking from this side? Well, if I can only say 300 things to you, I wonder what those 300 things should be. You know? I got about 300 sermons left as the crow flies, I figure. It's a country saying. So with your help, with your help, I intend to leave you something better than you've had. That is my mission. If you wonder, what is the pastor thinking? I'll tell you exactly what I'm thinking. I intend to leave you with something better than you've had. Now what you've had hadn't been bad, but I'd like to leave you with something better than what you've had. I intend to hand the baton of leadership to a group of young men and young women who will take the baton of the gospel and the yoke of leadership and they will lead Cornerstone to its golden years of ministry. That's what I intend to do. Now it'll take all of us, but that's our goal. Now, to accomplish this, I've said all of that to say this, to accomplish what needs to be accomplished here in the time we have together, I must challenge what you believe you must allow me to push you and test you and challenge what you believe in a way it's like being a coach you got to kind of push them a little bit coach to see what they've got and see how far they can go and show them maybe they need to go further or what the limits are or where they what they're capable of you must allow me to test and challenge what you believe. You must allow me the liberty to press you on the importance of knowing not only what you believe, but why you believe it. And I'm just going to keep urging you to be teachable 
stay unified, and that leads us to the issue at hand this morning. What do you believe? It's why we're going through the Apostles' Creed, the most famous creed in all of Christianity, so that we can all gather ourselves around what we believe. You have often been asked in your church experience by pastors, other pastors, questions like this. What do you believe so deeply that you would die for it? That's probably not an unfamiliar question to you. What do you believe so passionately that you would give your life for it? But I want you to know that the American church has completely disregarded this question entirely. And I want to tell you why we have. The question is moot to us. And I'm not saying it snark, in a snarky way. It is moot to us. We see the question as completely irrelevant because the American church is not being persecuted. The American church is not under the threat of physical violence or death for being here worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That is not your context. So no wonder you blow the question off. It's not a valid question for you. So let me ask what I think is maybe a better way to come at it, okay? Let me ask, I think, what is a better set of questions. What do you believe so deeply that what you would give your wealth to promote it? So when I start talking about money, it seems to get right to where we live really quickly. What do you believe so deeply that every time you put a paycheck in the bank, you would take a big chunk of that and throw it over here into the gospel cause of the kingdom of God? What do you believe so deeply that you would say, honey, this is a part of our life, this is a part of our budget, this is a part of who we are, and we are totally vested in this? That kind of gets right to it, doesn't it? Let me phrase it another way for I don't offend those who don't give. What do you believe so passionately that you would live your life for it? I'm not asking you to die for it this morning. I'm asking you to go out in the school year and live for Christ and live with a Christian ethic in the classroom. Many of you are teachers. A big chunk of you are students. Your lives are about to unfold in a new chapter this week with a fresh, clean slate to redefine yourself to your peer group and redefine yourself in your career and redefine yourself in the community and reassert yourself among your colleagues and your classmates what do you believe so deeply that you'd go live it on Wednesday? And it would be central to who you are, and it's what you want to project and tell the people around you. Now that brings us to the next section of the creed. The next section talks about what happened after the resurrection. Let's call these the last days. The, the creed says this, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, I'll not be able to unpack all four of those lines this morning, so allow this to spill over into next week. Let's start here. The modern church has mistakenly held the belief that the last days or the end times is some future period when all hell will break loose on planet Earth and empty cars with no drivers will be crashing into concrete pillars, and pilotless planes will be falling from the sky. That is incorrect. The last days, the end times, according to Scripture, are right now. The period known as the end times is now. Not something that's coming in the future and the mark of the beast, and the scorpions, and the hailstones, and the watered blood. It's now. Okay, let me reinforce for you. Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up at Pentecost, and he begins to preach his message. Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only 9 a.m. for Pete's sake. And Peter gets a little feisty here. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 17, in the last days, 
God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, let me pause right there. Because what Peter's preaching on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's been poured out on the church. And now they're preaching with boldness. And all the people who don't know Christ are saying, what is happening? And Peter said, the end times are what's happening. This is the fulfillment of Joel the prophet. The Holy Spirit's been poured out. Christ has risen. He's ascended. This is it. This is the great final chapter that God wants to show you. This is the end times. John said it a different way. I've taught you through this before. First John chapter number 2, verse 18. John wrote, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. Now, let me give you a theological term because I've got a lot of you reading different books right now that I'm assigning out and, and you're testing your theology. So let me throw a big theological word out. It's called eschatology. It's not a word you probably will use in conversation this week with your colleagues as you're sitting in the break room, you know. But eschatology is a technical word. It's the study of theology that's concerned with the end times. It's end times thinking. So whenever you think about as a Baptist, what happens at the end, what is the final state of the soul, judgment, end times, that's called eschatology. You may even hear someone say, you know, at the eschaton, they're talking about the end of all things. All right, Andy, help me with the graphic because I just want to put a picture into everybody's head. The creed has talked you through, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We all together? Now we're just building it. Andy, help me with the graphic here. This is Christmas. Can we all just stop right there a minute? God so loved the world, he did what? This is Christmas. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of the Virgin, made under the law. Jesus came from heaven to earth in a physical human body and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. We're all together on that. Essential teaching of Christianity. I hope we're all together. I believe, the, covenant, the, the Apostles' Creed said, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. Okay, advance it, Andy. Now, while Jesus was on earth, this is the gospel. He lived his life. He gave us the, the, uh, the teaching he came to give us. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Now we're at a place in the covenant where it's going to say to you in just a minute, we believe he ascended to heaven. Do we actually believe Jesus ascended to heaven? Where are you at on that? Okay, so he ascended to heaven. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. Bodily, physically, went up to heaven to sit on a throne the Bible says. Now let me advance it one more time. This is where we're going next week. We believe that he's coming back. Now I just want to keep it really simple because it's Christians have made it really complicated with lots of ups and lots of downs and lots of, of you know just beautiful mind kind of stuff. Okay? Keep it simple. Got Christmas. Easter happens. Ascension 40 days later. Unknown period of time, this is the end times. This is the end times, this period, right here between these two endpoints. And the Lord's going to come back. All right, now park that in your mind because what happens in the creed now is beginning to deal with eschatology, our belief about end times. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. It's the arrows I just showed you. That's what they're summarizing of the apostles' teaching. So let's talk about, we believe Jesus ascended to heaven. That is something we believe. And we believe it because of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We believe the ascension of Jesus into heaven as recorded in Acts chapter 1. So I'm going to read it for you. This is Luke writing. 
It's, uh, it's almost as if Luke and Acts in your Bible should be parked next to each other the same way 1st and 2nd Samuel are, or 1st and 2nd Corinthians are. Luke wrote them both. It's volume 1 and volume 2. Volume 1, the gospel, the life of Christ. Volume 2, here's what they did next, the Acts of the Apostles. Does that make sense? So now Luke is writing. He says, in my former book, that would be the gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Seems like Luke believes in the ascension. Are you, are you got that already, right? After giving instructions, we'll talk about the instructions Jesus gave through the Holy Spirit, the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, that's that gospel period where Jesus died, was buried, suffered under Pontius Pilate, descended to the dead, all that we talked about last week. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God on one occasion. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me talk about. That's the discourse in, in John. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Where Jesus kept saying, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit. I'm leaving, but I will not leave you orphans. I'm leaving, but I will send another unto you. I will be with you. You know, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit as a synonym of himself. I'll send the Spirit, I will be with you. You say, well, which is it? Yes. Exactly. What he's saying is I'm leaving in bodily form, but I'm going to send God's presence in spiritual form to live inside your heart. Now watch what he says. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift the Father's promise, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, John the Baptist, but in a few days... You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the outpouring of the Spirit, Acts chapter number 2, when it happened, I just read Peter's message about it, when it happened in Acts 2, it's called the baptism of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit, which is very interesting because Baptists believe baptism can't be pouring. It's very interesting, isn't it? Maybe we need to circle back to that in a whole other sermon about baptism. But yet you believe in the baptism of the Spirit, which was a pouring out of the Spirit. Quite interesting. Our hypocrisy knows no ends. All right, for John, sorry, just, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. Then Jesus tells his followers, okay, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before you leave Jerusalem. Now, they already know what to do when they leave Jerusalem because he's already told them that. I'll get to it in a minute. But he said, in the meantime, park it right here for a minute. This is a time of learning. This is a time of waiting. This is a time of waiting to be empowered with God's Spirit. Now, the disciples do not know Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. There's no, we have no reason to think they expect what's about to happen with that up arrow going to heaven. As a matter of fact, they have not anticipated most of what has happened in the last 43 days. They're asking some very different questions. They're not asking, okay, when do you leave? The apostles are asking very different questions. The apostles are saying, okay, Jesus, okay, we didn't see that crucifixion part coming. You got us, okay? We didn't see that coming. And we certainly, after the crucifixion, for those three days... We were so distraught, you got us again. We didn't see that resurrection part coming. Man, had we known that resurrection was coming, we'd have set up a buffet in the, in the garden. We'd have been waiting there with streamers and banners and flags and trumpets and sparklers. We'd be shooting off fireworks. He's back, he's back. You got us, man. We did not see that resurrection bit coming, that's for sure. But here's what we do know. We've read our Bibles and we know the Bible teaches God will send his king he will send his Messiah and he will rule and he will make it all right. So Jesus, here's our question. Is it time now? Now that you've died, now that you've risen, is it time now to go up to Jerusalem and take the throne? Won't Pontius Pilate be glad to see you? Risen from the dead. Won't the Pharisees be thrilled? <laughs> Let's go up and take control. Now watch it play out. Acts 1-6. 
Then they gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time, are we going to get the throne right now? Will you go get the kingdom and restore it? And he said to them, you're asking the wrong question now. It's not for us to know the times or the dates. The Father has set that in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Jesus is now, is it time to go get the throne? Jesus completely redirects their question and says, no, what's next is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, not the seizing of the throne on earth. What's next is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus did something they did not expect yet again for the third time. He ascends up into heaven. Imagine asking him a series of questions and having a dialogue and all of a sudden there he goes. Now what do you think in that moment? I'm diving for his feet. I'm saying, but wait, I've got 73 more questions. I was just getting started. There's so many things we need to ask that we still don't know the answer to. Evidently, Jesus thought sending you the Holy Spirit would be sufficient for everything else you needed to know. Grab onto that for a minute. Evidently, Jesus thought sending you the Holy Spirit was better than him remaining physically in Jerusalem. Evidently, God sees the system we've got right now as superior to what they had going in that moment. Acts 1, 9, the story continues. And after... He said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And as they were looking intently up the sky, up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white, let's call those angels, okay? Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Now I want you to get the scene. Here's all the disciples. Well, wasn't that something else? My, I got a list of questions and I'm not going to get any answers at all. Wow. Do you think he's coming back this afternoon? <laughs> now, wait a second. He's been appearing and disappearing for 40 days. Temper your expectations here. For 40 days, he's been saying, Remember, he broke bread at Emmaus, resurrected Christ, and acted like he was in charge. Poof, he's gone. They run to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, guys, guys, we've seen the risen Christ. Poof, he's there. And he begins to talk to them and say, touch me. It's really me. I'm in a physical body. So I think maybe they're thinking, okay, that was cool. We've never seen that. We saw him walk on water, but wow. Think he'll be back for dinner tonight? I don't know what went through their heads at that moment. But just to clarify, two angels show up. And the two angels addressed them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Did he not give you directions? What's up? Guys, hey, snap out of it. This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back. Now I want everybody in the room to grab a hold of those three words. There is your hope. He will come back. Now I want to ask you a question. Will come back where? To earth. He will come back to earth. The same Jesus who left is coming back to earth. In the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, here's what we say about Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension was physical. It was observable. It was experiential. It was experienced by his followers. Maybe you've never thought about this, but Jesus took something from earth back to heaven now. Jesus now takes a human body back to heaven with him, a resurrected human body, an incorruptible flesh human body has now been taken back. Something from earth has united with heaven. And in that physical body, he is about to go be seated on the throne of heaven. Now when the Bible says he went up, don't think up like a rocket going into outer space. That's not the meaning that's intended here. Up is Bible language for exaltation. Up is Bible language for he's going up into glory. 
I want to keep sowing into your mind the thought that heaven is not far away. We're not talking about dropping a pin on Google Maps. Oh, there's heaven. It's out past, you know, Alpha Draconis, the star. No, it's not like that. Heaven is another dimension. And a portal could open right here and you could step right through. I know that from Genesis because Jacob pillowed his head at Bethel and the door opened and poof, here comes the, I mean, the other world is opened and he wakes up and he says, this is none other than the gate of God. What happened? A portal opened to the other side. Now, I don't want you to think of heaven as way out there and God is so far away and he's probably got a mega telescope. He looks at us all the time. No, God is right here, but he exists in another dimension. You say, but he went up. Sure he did because he needed to send a message. I'm going up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, here's the deal. Living late in human history way 2,000 years on the other side of these events, we take the ascension for granted. Oh, yeah, well, so, yeah, I went to heaven, yeah, so what? We take it for granted, but we don't realize the disciples didn't expect this. But it harkens back to what Jesus was saying in John 14, where I'm going, you cannot follow right now, but you'll follow later. <laughs> you'll follow right now, but you'll follow later. See, the, the disciples, like us, thought they had their theology all worked out. Old Testament says this, here's the way we've interpreted it, God will send a king, the king will go take the throne. They thought they had their theology all figured out from the Old Testament, and guess what? Their theology was full of holes and errors. And so Jesus is updating their theology live, on the fly, almost every minute. Now here's the message I want to send to the congregation. You're going to have to keep updating your theology as well. Not because the events are happening new, 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 but because our understanding is only unfolding a chapter at a time as we mature. So as you mature, you're going to have to keep breaking the seals and, and rediscovering new things from the Word of God that you've not seen before. Remember now that the Acts and the Gospels were written 50, 50 years, roughly. I mean, this happened in 30, some of this stuff's being written in, in, in 70, 80, 90, 80, 50 years later, let's just say for generality. 50 years later after the actual events, the writers are beginning to write about what they experience. And my question to you is why record all of the details, why would Luke record all of the details about the ascension of Christ 50 years later? In other words, this wasn't written immediately. Something happened, something happened, something happened, something happened. Luke said, I need to write volume 2 to the book of Luke now because some things have happened and I need to make sure we are updated and everybody's on the same page about what actually went down over here in 33 AD. Does that make sense? You're like, what in the world must have happened? I'll tell you why Luke wrote part of this. He wrote it to keep false teaching out of the church. Because that's what happened here and going on into the second century. Let me see if I can explain. You see, what you believe matters because what you believe determines how you live. What you believe determines who you are, not vice versa. And by the late second, uh, late first century, let's go first century, by the late first century, certainly into the second century, false teaching had invaded the church. Listen carefully. The paganism of Plato the philosopher, had so invaded the church, so successful was the invasion of Platonism into the church of Jesus Christ that Platonism remains prominent in the evangelical church even today. I'll see if I can explain. The evangelical church today is still believing that our destiny is to die and fly away to heaven to spend eternity with Jesus. That was the pagan teaching of Plato that is not the story the Bible's telling. This same Jesus you see go shall so come in like form as you have seen him go. Where is he coming to? That's the story the Bible's telling you. That a resurrected Christ in an incorruptible body has taken a resurrected human body to the throne of heaven and he's next going to return to earth. That's what it's telling you. The Bible is not telling a story that you need to put your faith in Jesus so we can die, become angels, 
spirits disembodied from this wicked flesh which we'll leave behind and some glad morning when this life is over I'll fly away to be in eternity with Jesus. That's Platonism. That's not Bible. Now you say, well, where are our dead loved ones? In heaven with Jesus. But not in resurrected bodies. And you know where they're going next? Down to earth. In resurrected bodies. Now that's the story the Bible's telling. You say, well, I'm going to live in heaven with Jesus. You'll be mighty lonely. Because he's not going to be there. But for a period of time. You say, well, I'm going to go see my loved ones. You're going to miss them. You're going to New York and they're flying from New York to Dallas. And you're going to land in New York and say, where are my loved ones? They're going to say, we just landed in Dallas. Where are my loved ones? You're going to miss each other on the journey if that's what you're thinking. Listen, we've misinterpreted the story the Bible's telling. Yes, Jesus went to heaven. But look forward in the creed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come. He will return to judge the living and the dead. Listen, that Platonism has so embedded itself in evangelicalism that the evangelicals are telling the wrong story. A false teaching of dualism also invaded the church in the second century. And that dualism taught that Jesus wasn't maybe a real man. They didn't like, well, they didn't like Jesus being a real man. How about that? They didn't like God being in a human body. So the heretic, Marcion, edited both the story of the birth of Christ and the ascension of Christ. In other words, he just made a spirit, uh, a man filled with, with God's spirit, and, and he did some good things, but he wasn't born of the virgin, and he didn't ascend up into heaven. He just edited those bits of the story out because they didn't like that part about the story that, uh, that the Bible was telling. Others taught that Jesus ascended spiritually, not physically, but that the spirit of Jesus went up and he left his body behind because the body was thought to be evil. That's Platonism also. The material world is designed to, uh, consigned to decay, consigned to ruin, and therefore Jesus must leave the body behind and salvation as a way of saying we escape the misery of this world and they taught that Jesus wanted nothing to do with the physical world, that all Jesus talked about was the spiritual world and I'll tell you what the apostles thought about all of that teaching. They said, baloney. They said, that's nonsense. They said, we were here. We know what we saw. We know what we experienced. We know what Jesus said. And so the early church uh, Christians, the early fathers, they began to write about this stuff. And they proclaimed their belief in Jesus' physical incarnation at Christmas. A human being was born in Bethlehem named Jesus of Nazareth. And he was the son of God. That's what they wrote about. And that that man lived a perfect life. And that he gave beautiful teachings. And he showed us the way of God. And he modeled the kingdom of God. And he modeled the kingdom ethic for us. And he laid down his life sacrificially on the cross. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. But then they also wrote, physically he rose from the grave. And they recorded all of those bits of teaching about touch me and see if it's not me. Handle me. Put your finger right here in my, my hand and touch the wound in my side and give me some fish to eat. It was very physical for them. They realized he's actually in a risen, incorruptible body. And then they went on to write, and that same physical Jesus in an incorruptible resurrection, new creation body now disappears up into the cloud. Now, here's what they were teaching. They were teaching that in his ascension, he is still present and he is very much in charge. Now, I want you just to grab a hold of this because it's going to challenge you. The faith of ancient Christians was not about let's, let's all believe in Jesus so we can all escape this world and go to heaven. The faith of early Christians was the promise of Jesus Christ that all who believe in him have overcome death as well through his death and resurrection and the promise that every one of us who believe are also going to experience our own resurrection. Not only that, but earth will experience an earthly resurrection. Do you remember the, the bit in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, and the wolf and the lamb shall lie down together and they will beat their swords in, in, into plowshares? They're, they're going to go, they shall no warfare no more. That's the part 
planet Earth gets a resurrection. We get a resurrection. Everything on planet Earth will be transformed. Irenaeus, the church father, said it this way, the Son of God did not reject human nature, nor exalt himself above it, but he united himself with our nature in order to unite us to God. Beautifully said. The ascension is not about Jesus' absence from creation. It's not about Jesus' absence from our lives. Jesus ascended to be fully present over all of creation. While he's standing in Jerusalem, he's just standing in Jerusalem. But now that he's sitting on the throne, he is Lord over all of creation. Do you see the difference in wordplay that's happening here? He has ascended to be Lord of all. Not just Lord to 12 or 120 or a few thousand people in the Middle East. He has ascended to be Lord of all. And as Lord of all, he is in charge. Make no mistake. And he has sent his spirit. This is what Peter said. This is the last period now. These are the last days. And what you're witnessing is God is sending his spirit into the world to live in the life of every believer so that in his ascension, he never has... Listen, in his ascension, we think, well, he's gone. No, he's never been more fully present. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Old Testament psalmist, he inhabits the praise of his people. Listen, where two or three Christians gather together, the authority of Almighty God has gathered right there. The Lordship of Christ is there. The ascended Christ is living through us right now in this world. And Jesus is vindicated. Stay with this thought. Why write all of this down? To vindicate Jesus Christ. That's why. You see, his ascent to the right hand of the Father is a public, open vindication that Jesus is who he's always claimed to be. Here's what the Bible records if you look carefully. He is born to a king's family. He is born in a king's city. And as a little tyke of a couple of years old, the magi, the king makers, show up at his house, bend their knees, and worship before the king. And they present their gifts and they worshiped him. He stood before Pilate. And Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? I like sassy Jesus. (laughs) Pilate said, are you a king? Sassy Jesus says, listen Einstein, did you figure that out for yourself or did you look on somebody else's paper? That's about the comment Jesus gave him. Did you learn that of yourself or did another person tell you this? You're looking on somebody else's paper over there. You're looking on your wife's paper right now. Cut it out, Pilate. Come on, man. Answer for yourself now. Don't let your wife do it for you. Oh, that sassy Jesus. Now listen. Jesus is being vindicated. Are you a king? Thou sayest that I am a king and to this end was I born. That's why I'm here. Sassy Jesus. Hello. That's why I'm here. What are you going to nail over the cross, Pilate? Here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Three languages so all the world could read it. Listen, it gets even deeper at the trial before the high priest. Let me read from Matthew. Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you, Jesus, under oath. Don't forget, sir. This is like a courtroom scene. You're under oath. Don't forget, You raise your right hand and swore an oath. So I charge you by your oath and by the living God. Now tell us, Jesus of Nazareth, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? 64. Jesus responds, well, you've said so. You've said so. Are you the Messiah? Well, I guess that's why I'm here on trial, isn't it? You've said I am. But I say to all of you, From now on, something's about to happen. That's what he's saying. From now on, you're about to see something. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He's spoken blasphemy. 
Why do we need any more witness? I gavel this trial to a close. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you jurors think? They shouted, he's worthy of death. And they began to spit on him, spit right into his face. And they struck him with their fists. And others combined slapped him. Can you see the scene in your mind? Tell us plainly, are you the king? Here's his response in the court trial. You're about to see. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, exalted at the Father's right hand. Now look at verse 64 again. From now on, you will see the Son of Man, very important, sitting at the right hand of the Father, of the power of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven you you want to know why the high priest tore his clothes and they gaveled the trial to a conclusion because when jesus said those three phrases when he said son of i am the son of man i'm going to sit at the right hand of the father you will see me in the clouds of heaven those old testament scholars knew immediately and unequivocally that jesus has just declared to be the lord equal with yahweh of the old testament he had just said i'm not just the messiah i'm yahweh i am that i am and there is no explanation for me and no cause for me. I am the causer of everything. I am that I am. And in a few days, your eyes are going to bug out of your head because the Son of Man is going to be seated in glory. He'll be with the clouds at the right hand of the Father. Now, all of that language is straight out of the Old Testament. If we knew our Old Testament, we would know that Jesus just threw them back to the foot of Mount Sinai and said, remember the clouds, remember the thunder, remember the ground, remember the voice that spoke. That's who I am. And that's what I'm about to go back to. They remembered the words of Daniel. Let me read Daniel. You'll get it when I read Daniel. Daniel 7, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days god the father and he was led into his presence and this son of man was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed jesus said that's who i am and when he said those little phrases he said all of that mouthful in cliff notes version to them that's who i am jesus said i'm ascending to the throne now we've been wrongly taught We've been wrongly taught that Satan is in charge right now. I know that because I, we're part of the people who taught it. We've been wrongly taught that Satan is in charge right now. And one day Jesus will come back and take charge. It's bad theology. It's not correct. The Bible's saying something very different. The Bible's saying that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he's in charge right now 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 you've got a problem to reconcile but he's in charge right now so here's the question you want to ask so let me ask it for you okay if it's jesus in charge right now then why all the problems well let me ask you this was jesus in charge in eden did they sin yeah they rebelled against the guy who was in charge in charge doesn't mean he turned you into a robot and when you say, well, what about all the problems then if God's in charge? Listen, you can't dismiss human responsibility for the mess that humanity and this planet are in. You can't say, well, God should just fix it. He'll fix it eventually in the resurrection when he comes back down. But, but to, before he comes, he's still in charge. You're just kind of in the in-between stage right now. You've got the mess that we've made. And yet you've got a living, resurrected Messiah sitting on the throne of the universe. Don't diminish our role in this. We've sinned. We rebelled. We mismanaged the planet. 
Baptists need amen right there. For all of you just want to trash it and leave and let God sort it out later. We mismanaged the planet. We perpetrated warfare on our neighbors. We did all of this. So God sent his king to make the world right. And now his kingdom has come. He's fully in charge. Now in the podcast this week, if you've listened to it already, I talked about how God was in charge when Jesus died. Clearly, the scripture says so. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews? The Romans? Sinners? Uh, Who did it? God did it. Nobody could crucify Jesus against his will. He he could have, what was the say? He said, I could call down legions of angels. I have to be willing to do this. You say, who crucified him? Peter said in that great message that it was the predetermined plan of God. God put Jesus on the cross. Jesus put Jesus on the cross. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for you. Rome wasn't in charge. Pharisees weren't in charge. God's still in charge. Satan maybe had a little more free reign, but Jesus is about to feed him through the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, however horrible it was, however bad the suffering was, it was necessary for the redemption of humanity and creation. Jesus did not lose through his suffering. It was actually the story of the Bible's telling you is that through his suffering and resurrection is exactly how he won the battle over sin and death. Modern Christians are having a very allergic reaction right now to any scripture that speaks about Christian suffering. The whole point of the book of Revelation is that Christians are going to suffer at the hands of kings, at the hands of governments, at the hands of despots, at the hands of religious systems, but the Lamb of God is worthy to sit on the throne and open the book, and the Lamb of God is how we overcome because of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. It's through the Lamb that we overcome and are victorious. That's the whole story. Yet, there's still some time to go. We're in the end times. And there is still some time to go before the kingdoms of this world all come in line and become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There's still a little while to go before things are set fully right. But early Christians believed that wherever believers have assembled, God's authority, God's victory, God's presence is already assembled here with us. We need to be asking ourselves, not is it Jesus in charge of, you know, the Democrats or the Republicans or Putin or are the Democrats in charge of all Assad or, or one of these maniacs out there in the world? The question we need to be asking, is God in charge of us? This is the question we failed to ask. That's why Jesus told us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will, in me first. Here first. You see, we need to be asking not is, you know, the government going to come in line with Jesus. We need to be asking ourselves, is the church going to come in line with Jesus? Are we going to give our wealth to his mission? Are we going to love our neighbor? Are we going to do unto other? Listen, school year's about to start. We've got to decide are we going to live with the Christian ethic? Are we going to be light and salt? Are we going to give a cup of water? Are we going to care for the widow and orphan? Are we going to pray for our neighbor? Are we going to love one another? Are we going to yield to the lordship of the ascended Christ sitting on the throne of glory? Or are we just going to come to church on Sunday and snark about the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Listen, the, the story the Bible's trying to get across is only change people can change the world. You are the changed people. And if not us, then pray tell who? We are the light of the world. Let your light shine. We are resurrected people living a new life in an old world where Jesus is now in charge, but the kingdom hasn't fully overcome the whole planet. The planet hasn't come in line yet with the king. Listen, I'm not waiting to leave planet Earth. I'm not looking for a rapture. I'm waiting for heaven to come to Earth. I'm not saying, hey, let's, you know, let's all get our bags packed. We're leaving. I'm saying to you, Jesus is coming. He's returning. And when he returns, he will set all things right. And your loved ones, the dead in Christ, shall rise. 
and we shall rise to meet them and this planet's going to be changed and the dead are going to be judged. We'll get to it next week. So let me close with this. In the meantime, what are we to be doing? Well, I'm glad you asked because right before he ascended, he gave them some directions. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 28. He said, let's gather for a kingdom briefing. Here's my instructions to you. Commissioning service. Then Jesus came and said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. If you want to know what you need to be doing this fall, I'm reading it to you right now. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, surely, He's far away in a distant galaxy with Luke Skywalker? No. Surely I am with you always. That means at work this week, when you go to interview, when you go to your first day of school, when you finish up your shopping, wherever you go, he is surely with you. When you say, gosh, i got to stand and face a new class, and I don't know my students, and they don't know me, and I hope I get all of this right, and how's it going to be? Surely I am with you, Jesus says. I'm going to be with you to the end of this age. And I want to ask you a question as I close. The whole teaching this morning is he ascended to heaven. You believe that? I want to ask you a question now. I don't know the full answer. I think I know, but I'm going to conjecture a little bit here. What do you think that was like? In other words, do you think heaven opened and Jesus stepped in? Everybody was just pretty chill. What's up, Jay? You back? I want you to imagine what that's like. You've read the book of Revelation and some of that party going on, right? If you've never partied with the Jews, by the way, there's some singing, dancing, drinking, good times. You know? What do you think this was like? When Jesus went back after just winning the battle of all ages and securing eternal life for humanity and guaranteeing a bodily resurrection for all of us and guaranteeing that planet earth would be restored and now having fully taken charge, you think, what do you think that was like? That was not a laid back situation, ladies and gentlemen. That was all praise breaking loose right there. That was worship and praise and do you, let me ask you this. I don't know how you imagine heaven, but let's imagine it as a walled city with a castle and a throne. And, a, and You see what I'm saying? Do you imagine all the people in heaven were just kind of you know, kicked back to, oh, look, here he comes. Be here in about five minutes, it looks like. Is that what you imagine? No, I imagine the gates being flung open. I imagine preparation has been made. I imagine the people in the city spill out into the streets and they line the streets and they line both sides and they run out as far as the people will stretch carrying banners and flags and palm branches and throwing their coats down in the street and crying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You did it. You did it. You're, you're the son of God. You, you're the great I am. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of I bet trumpets are blasting. I bet people are shouting. I bet people are singing worthy is the lamb who was slain. And now he's back. Listen, open the way. Listen, there's a psalm that has a little language. Let me read it to you. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be you lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift them up. Lift up your ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. I would imagine it's a little bit like that. You want to know what His return is going to be like? I bet it's going to be a little bit like that. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe He ascended to the throne of heaven. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, with all the words I have, I've tried to describe what I think might be happening. 
And I realize my language falls so short to be able to describe your majesty and your glory and your power and your ascent to the throne of God. But God, would you impress upon our hearts and minds what we've heard here this morning? Lord, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for you. Lord, we're not looking for the mark of the beast and the return of the Republicans. And the and Lord, we're looking for you to return from heaven and make it all right. And we know you will. But Lord, until you return, I'm asking you this morning, Lord, would you put something in our hearts? Would you stir us so deeply in our souls this morning that we would walk out of these doors ready to go face a new school year, ready to go face a new work week, Lord, would you re-energize us with the living presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives, empowering us and giving us authority in this world. Lord, we acknowledge your vindication. You are who you claim to be. And about that, we have no doubt. God, you've given us a, a mission and Lord, now I pray that we would live out that mission not with arrogance or pride, but with humility and love and compassion. Lord, we're about to see people this week we've not seen. Not just for a few months, Lord, some of them we haven't seen in years or more. God, give us a burden to let our light shine that they may see you in our lives. Lord, help us to live with the kingdom ethic as we face this new chapter of our life. Father, we love you so much. And it's in your precious name we pray.